The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. I was just reflecting how there was a season in my early faith as a young Christian in high school with the crowd of Christians I ran with were much more comfortable talking about the Holy Spirit and expecting the presence of the Holy Spirit than other seasons in my Christian pilgrimage. And it's great that we can give a proper biblical focus to this very, very important topic from our creed but also to consider who is and, and how do we approach uh, the very third member of the Holy Trinity. You know, we live in a day and age with internet access and satellite te- technologies that enable us to connect with people and places all around the world. We have military spy satellites nowadays that can zoom in and take up-close pictures of people and activity and movement from from miles away, gathering data on the whereabouts of enemies or other important information. The tech giant Google has been under scrutiny in recent months over privacy concerns of them taking photographs in residential areas and streets, and property owners are concerned about what type of information that the Google tech giant is gathering. People are weary of the information and the knowledge gathered by government, by companies and organizations, and uh, getting a little too up close and personal. Well, all that being said, the technologies of our day are, are nothing. They are no match compared to the knowledge and the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, who is everywhere present, and who has been sent by the Father and the Son to convict us of sin, to testify to the truth, and to bring glory to Christ. Let us turn to John's Gospel and pick up in verse 5 as we consider what Jesus has to teach about the Holy Spirit. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, 
the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for sending forth your Son into this world to provide a redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his precious blood. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you return to the Father and with the Father sent your Holy Spirit to lead us into truth and to seek glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Spirit, that you would be with us tonight. Illumine your word and lead us to the Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For the first several years after I graduated from Covenant Theological Seminary, I experienced this phenomena of recurring deep convictions of truth being spoken in my mind with the familiar voice of one of my favorite professors at seminary. That professor, who was of British origin, is Jerem Bars, a well-loved and well-respected professor Professor Barris had a very unique boldness, a boldness of truth and passion for the gospel in Christ that for many of us, and I have, with fellow alumni, we've talked about the Jaron Barnes effect, where for years we were haunted by his voice, convicting us whenever we were tempted to wander or compromise or neglect a ministerial duty. But I'm thankful for such a man's influence in my spiritual and ministry formation. Perhaps you've had an influential person in your life. A parent, a friend, a mentor of some kind whose words still ring true in your memory. Perhaps that that echoing voice stings your conscience at times whenever you're tempted to veer from biblical standards of righteousness. Well, as important as people are in our Christian growth and discipleship, all people are secondary to the primary mover, the Holy Spirit, the one Jesus promised to send upon his departure from earth. On this night, the very eve of his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Here Jesus explains the work of the Holy Spirit in John 16 in response to the sorrow that is filling the disciples' hearts. They are fearful and dreading his departure. And yet Jesus insists that it's for their advantage that he go away. For only if he goes away can he send the Holy Spirit in the divine economy. In the mysterious wisdom of God, it was better for Jesus not to remain here. To no longer be the spotlight, the focus of people's attention in his bodily form and presence here on earth, but rather for him to return to the Father's side and to make way for the coming of the all-knowing, everywhere present, third person of the Trinity, the one who would come to convict sinners of sin, who would bear witness and testify to the truth and ultimately bring glory to Christ. Well, before I dive into John chapter 16 and address uh, its issues and its practical application, I want to address uh, kind of a broad spectrum of questions regarding the Holy Spirit that we might understand better his person and work in redemption. We re- recall that Jesus compares the Spirit in John chapter 3 to the wind because of his invisible, powerful, and uncontrollable character. We've seen in recent weeks, locally and on the news nationwide, the devastating power of the wind as sweeping tornadoes have devastated the midsection of the United States of America. Well, the Holy Spirit is certainly powerful. And yet, the Scripture describes him, at least in two places, that he is the Spirit of peace and order. We see that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove a biblical symbol of peace. We also see from Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and chaos of creation in order to bring order. The Spirit gave life to the creatures and is intimately involved in the breath of God in the fashioning of man, the crown jewel of creation. Well, throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God coming on the scene to enable various people to fulfill very unique and special assignments from God. A craftsman named Bezalel from Judah was filled with the Spirit of God in order to design and build the tabernacle under Moses' leadership. And then we find that, that when Moses was overburdened with his leadership task, and cried out to God, God responded by taking the Spirit and placing the Spirit upon his elders to provide him assistance in judging the people. And then we see throughout the Old Testament in the period of the judges and the kings and the prophets of old that God would equip men by filling them with the Spirit. We think of Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Saul, David, Elijah, and Elisha, all performed mighty deeds of valor and victory by the Spirit's presence and power. 
But we find this theme throughout the Old Testament of a kind of limiting effect. How somehow the Spirit was limited in his scope and power and presence while anticipating a greater age. A greater age in which the Spirit would be unleashed with tremendous redemptive power. The prophet Isaiah draws attention and focuses on the coming Messiah who would be anointed bountifully with the Spirit of God in his work of redemption. The prophet Joel foresees the day that would far exceed the days of Moses and Elijah where all God's people, a plurality of God's people, would be filled with the Spirit and respond with prophecies, dreams, and visions. The Spirit's work in the Old Testament among the people of God was kind of restrained like a dammed up river before it was unleashed with mighty waters on the day of Pentecost. It was on that great day that the Spirit descended upon the first disciples in the form of flaming tongues of fire to anoint and equip and empower them to inaugurate the church, to spread the gospel as they spoke in the languages of foreigners, that they might understand the truth of gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another question we can address with the Holy Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit a person? Well, we see that Jesus refers to him as the helper. He is a counselor, our comforter. He is the paraclete, to use the Greek word, who exhorts us, who encourages us. He is the spirit of truth and our teacher of righteousness. The repeated use of the personal pronoun is one indicator of the Holy Spirit is a person. The spirit is a he, not an it. We also learn from the opening chapter of Matthew that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit, who was key in the creation of the heavens and the earth, is also intimately involved in the incarnation of the Son of God, who took on human flesh. At the end of his ministry, before ascending, Jesus offered up the Great Commission, commanding his disciples to baptize using the triune name, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit indicating equal status within the Godhead. And also we see the triune formula being used by Paul in his benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Jesus warned against committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is, hardening one's heart attributing the clear work of God to the work of demons. And then we also see throughout the New Testament that the authors grant to the Holy Spirit the power of inspiration. In repeated references to David's Psalm, Psalm 110, and then Peter's declaration that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When confronting Ananias and Sapphira, two early disciples who 
pretended to bring all the proceeds from the sale of their property to the apostles' feet. Peter confronts them for lying to the Holy Spirit. And there they were promptly struck dead by the Lord. In the likeness of Uzzah, who presumed too much and stretched out his hand to steady the faltering Ark of the Covenant. One can only lie to a person. Well, as we see throughout the book of Acts in a couple of key important roles, we see that the Holy Spirit takes on very personal and, and leading roles in the work of the apostles. We see in their letter to the Gentiles in chapter 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And Luke also records that Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So we see the Holy Spirit very alive and very active and very present in the work of the gospel going out through the first apostles. So what is the Holy Spirit's work in redemption? One of the richest expressions in all of Scripture regarding the work of the Spirit comes from one of my favorite chapters, Romans chapter 8. There, Paul begins by contrasting the believer of the unbeliever walking according to the flesh in unbelief versus one who lives by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a contrast. It's a difference between death and life of hostility towards God Versus friendship with God. When one believes in Christ and is identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, the Spirit comes to take up residence, to dwell in us. This echoes Paul's other writings in 1 Corinthians 6 when he declares that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to amplify the many privileges that we have as being led by the Spirit, that we are the sons of God. Like the people Israel, who were delivered out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, we are no longer held in a spirit of slavery. Rather, through Christ, we enjoy the spirit of adoption, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of and daughters of the living God. In my house currently, I have four boys sleeping in the same room. Sometimes it's five boys in that room. And when one of them cries out in the night, I recognize their voice. I not only know it's one of my sons, I also can tell which among my sons it is and can call him by name. In the same way, God the Father through the Holy Spirit, not only knows that we are his children, he also knows us by name. He recognizes us, even as the Spirit is uttering cries within our own soul up to the Father, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He also informs us that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness when we do not know what to pray for. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groaning too deep for words. There are times when I am unsure what to pray pray for. 
how to pray, when I'm feeling insecure, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm worn out by oppressive situations. I have the Spirit of God to help me and to intercede on my behalf. May we learn to yield to the Spirit, to bring utterance out of our hearts like a loving parent, helping a young child learn to speak and to express desires and the thoughts of his or her heart. Well, the Spirit also helps us by intercession and by way of searching us. This echoes back to the Psalm 139 of David, in which David writes this glorious poem to the all-seeing, all-knowing God. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. There was a time in David's life, a very troubled season, as he wrestled with shame and guilt over his acts of adultery and murder. And as we read in the call to worship from Psalm 51, David cries out, Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David would have faced whatever hardship, painful discipline, facing the consequences for his actions, the one thing he begged of God, to not take his spirit from him. That is the cry of the believer who will trade away everything in this world to remain in fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. I turn now also to another passage, Ephesians 1, a glorious set of uh, passage of Scripture in which we better understand the divine economy, how each member of the Trinity fulfills its role in the work of redemption. We learn here that the Father elects, the Son executes that plan, and the Spirit effects, makes effective or applies the work of redemption in our hearts. We know from Ephesians 1 that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ according to his glorious purpose and will. And then the Son was sent to execute that plan, to fulfill it, who laid aside his glory, who took up human flesh, who carried our burdens to the cross, who suffered punishment in our place, a willing substitute, sacrifice for our sins. And then having conquered sin and death, he rose again and returned to the Father. And yet the work was not done because now the Holy Spirit comes to apply that truth, to apply that reality in the believer's life, to be born again, to be marked with a seal for God to set to kind of, like the king takes a signet ring and plants his image on an important document. So the Holy Spirit applies God's signet ring to our hearts. That you and I are marked, that we are branded, that we are, we are possessed. We, our sign of ownership is by the Holy Spirit who seals us like a wedding ring. We are marked and we are chosen and we are secure in the Father's love. It's the Holy Spirit who secures for us an eternal inheritance. It says in Ephesians 1.13, And you are included in Christ 
When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And by way of application, Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Like we're engaged. And we are engaged to the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit is that engagement ring, sealing us, preparing us for that great and glorious wedding day. When we will be presented, the bride of Christ, to the groom, the Lord Jesus himself. Well, we could consider other matters from John 3 and Titus 3 and other places in Scripture that give us further illumination into the work of the Holy Spirit. But I want to hasten into our main text in John 16 to better understand as we return here, beginning in verse 8, that the Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see, God, knowing the wicked hearts of men, needed an agent, needed one to come and convict men of the sin. And the most grievous sin of all is the sin of unbelief. The sin of ignoring, of dismissing, of presuming, of failing to respond to God the Creator and God the Redeemer through the work of Christ. Jesus endured all kinds of opposition from wicked men who refused to believe in him. And we see in Jesus an eagerness to return to his Father's side, not only to be with the Father, but so that he might send the Holy Spirit. He might unleash his power and influence and ability to convict men's hearts, to awaken sleeping sinners, to rescue rebels and restore them as adopted sons and daughters of God. Children like to play make-believe. But you and I have no power to make-believe. We cannot make anybody believe. But the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit has the power of make-believe to bring life and renewal and faith, to awaken and bring to life the dead men's hearts. You know, we, we can make arguments to people. We can appeal to people. We can love people and pray for people, but we cannot make them believe. We were reminded of this uh, in a very clear way in this last day or two as we learned of the death of Chuck Colson, a man who was obstinately opposed to the things of God until God got his attention with a conviction and prison sentence back in the 1970s and responding to the call of the gospel and to lead a life of witness Bound to the truth in his famous book, Born Again. It's been a wonderful blessing to many, many believers. We're reminded through his life and testimony that only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction of sin and true repentant faith. While the Spirit's presence with us is also a witness through believers of reminding the unrighteous of the judgment to come. And that's one of the reasons why believers are oftentimes met with hostility, whether it's from people who are entrenched in dogmatic religions that are opposed to the gospel, or whether other kinds of people who are enslaved to all kinds of modern-day isms, blinded by unbelief and an intent on suppressing the truth. 
the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, who guides believers into all truth that we might counter the lies of the world. Jesus declared to Pontius Pilate that it was for this very reason that he came into the world, to testify to the truth. But he did not leave without a witness. He sent the Holy Spirit to continue to testify to the truth using you and I to bring conviction of guilt and to remind people that judgment is coming and people have an opportunity to repent. As believers, we know that the Word of God is our source of truth. But we also have a helper. We have a counselor. Many of you appreciate Pastor Rogers and other faithful men of God who help you understand the Word. And praise God for faithful preachers to illuminate God's Word. But friend, as a believer, you also have the Holy Spirit to illumine. The the preacher can't do it himself. The preacher is powerless and helpless without the Holy Spirit to bring life and faith in the hearts of men and women. And so it's the Holy Spirit who comes to illumine, to shine the light upon the truth. Like uh, if you're walking in the dark and there's a danger sign, but you can't even see the sign. You need a lamp. You need a light to point out to you the danger, to warn you from the judgment and the danger to come, to steer you back on the right path. So the Holy Spirit illumines the path of righteousness and truth. Well, friends, in the likeness of Christ, we have the privilege to be truth-tellers, to liberate people from falsehood, but our greatest privilege is that which our text ends upon, highlighting the fact, as Jesus declares, that the Holy Spirit came to glorify Christ, to point to Jesus Christ as the only hope for sinners, to shine the spotlight on the truth and righteousness of Jesus Christ. What's beautiful about this picture is we see that just as the Son delighted to bring glory to the Father, so it's the Holy Spirit's delight to bring glory to the Son. And so as we see in the triune family, the three persons of the Trinity serving one another, enhancing one another's glory, and the work of expanding redemption to claim lost sinners and bring them home. And so what do we say to all these things? How do we apply? What are some practical considerations to apply to everyday Christian living? My first question for you is this. Do you ask for the Holy Spirit? Do you consciously depend upon the Holy Spirit? Jesus says in Luke 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask, and you will receive. Is it the desire of your heart to ask for the Holy Spirit's life and presence and renewal in your life? Do you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you want more fruit of the Spirit in your Christian walk? Do you want to keep in step with the Spirit? To subdue the flesh? If so, then ask. 
Be bold, like Elisha, who asked Elijah to petition to God to give him a double portion of his spirit. It's yours for the asking. How about this question? Do you pray to the Holy Spirit? I'm sure everyone in here is comfortable with praying to God. Perhaps uh, many of us use the word Father God. We, we pray to the Father directly, or oftentimes we will make appeal directly to, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. That's very good. But did you know that you can pray to the Holy Spirit, that he is fully God, and that we, because he is present with us, he intimately knows us and knows our needs and guides us in all prayer. As I read the full text from Romans eight twenty six, it says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with, with God's will. Wow. Perhaps you know somebody who cares about you and prays for you on a regular basis. Do you know that the Holy Spirit prays for you on a regular basis? That Jesus, the Son of God, is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. But the Spirit is right here. He is right here And he is within you, interceding for you before the Father. He is the wonderful counselor who teaches us how to pray. And thirdly, I ask you, do you try to be the Holy Spirit? You know, some people try to be God and control things control other people. And then there are other people who struggle sometimes trying to be the Messiah, trying to save other people, trying to rescue everybody rather than pointing them alone to the true Savior. And then there are those of us who try to play Holy Spirit, to judge the attitudes and the intentions of people's hearts helping them to point out their own heart sins. You know, it's cute when children play act like superheroes. It's not so cute when adults try to play the Holy Spirit, whether it's with your spouse or your children or your pastor or a fellow believer or anybody else. You know, we are called to confront people invisible grievous sins. But we cannot judge the heart. That's God's job. And in particular, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. We're called to pray, to give an example, and to encourage people, pointing them to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And in his likeness and with his power, we do the same. You know, when you come across somebody who is kind of important in your mind, and if you didn't know that person very well, and and you come upon that person, and that person knows your name, and says hello to you by name, it gets your attention. 
you, you're surprised. It actually makes you feel really good. You're like, wow, so-and-so knows who I am. That's a really special feeling. But you know what? Because of the Holy Spirit, the Father knows who you are. Because you're marked with a seal. The Father knows you, and he knows you by name. And friend, when we get to glory, we'll not be a nobody. We will not be nameless. We will be known. And we will be welcomed, and we will be called out by name. I'm convinced that when we arrive at heaven, there will be no mistake. We will see Jesus, and we will know who Jesus is right away. Because of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, even now, is preparing us and equipping us for that glorious moment when we will be handed into the arms of the Savior. And he will not overlook us. He will not forget our names. He will know you because you are marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Spirit that we have freedom to come into God's holy presence. And it's the Spirit affecting us even now for that ultimate glory. As Paul writes, as I close in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for fulfilling your plan of redemption through the Son. And even now, by your Holy Spirit, you are expanding your kingdom, that you are working your perfect effects of redemption in our hearts. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us, that you lead us, that you convict us, that you empower us, that you equip us for the works of service that you have prepared in advance for us to do. We bless you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.